the cybersecurity leaders are being thrust into the spotlight as cybersecurity becomes a strategic risk for companies, but not necessarily given the tools and the resources to be able to influence the board or the C-suite or the CFO who holds the purse strings. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Behave podcast. My name is Munya Hoto. I'm the VP of Marketing here at CybSafe. Today, I am delighted and extremely excited to be able to have as my guest, Yanya Viskovic, uh, who is Senior Manager Security Consulting at Accenture. Yanya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Munya. I mean, I'm so excited about where we're going to take this because you've built quite a reputation as a subject matter expert in security. And for those that don't know you yet, they will know by the end of this episode, uh, some of the contributions that you've made to the industry and indeed what impact it's having. But before we go there, would you mind just giving us a bit of a journey of how does someone like you start and end up in the role that you're in contributing to the security industry in this way? Well, I can say in a very squiggly way. <laughs> So my path into cybersecurity is a very non-linear one. I come from a legal background. So let me just give you a bit of context to my career start because it actually, I think, informs my approach to security and user behavior that I have today. So I grew up in Australia on a relatively isolated and large farm. This actually cultivated in me a very strong curiosity about the big wide world that existed outside of it and ultimately led me to choose a career that would enable me to work and live on what's now been five continents, I think. I graduated from law and international relations, and then I began my career as a criminal prosecutor. And then I moved uh, to the Federal Prosecution Service. I was prosecuting what was then called high-tech computer crimes, which is basically all the dark net stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my roles also entailed a lot of training of law enforcement agencies and government investigators, training them on how to lawfully obtain listening devices and search warrants and building up their capacity as investigators and, and as government investigative agencies to ensure that the investigations that they were running would ultimately be lawful and able to result in a successful prosecution. Mm. And I was advising a lot of regulatory authorities, including the Australian Federal Privacy Commissioner. So this is where I really began, I think, my first foray into privacy, data protection and data security and, and cybersecurity or cybercrime, although I wasn't really aware of it at that time. It was just part of my portfolio and, and over time it grew. But this is really where I cut my professional teeth, I think, as a prosecutor. These foundations really helped shape my views on security and human behavior and, and consequence management. So after six years of that, I moved uh, to the UN, uh, to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, um, to fulfill a, a longstanding dream. And I ended up working for them in lots of different countries and continents and doing lots of different things, which was a fantastic foundation, um, actually, because what it gave me was an exposure to lots of different cultures and ways of doing things and realising that approaches to data security and, and cyber and data protection are very cultural. So I ended up strategizing crisis contingency plans uh, for Lebanon during the height of the Syria crisis. I was also developing anti-fraud programs for the UN. And then I had the opportunity to edit and help draft the UN's first data protection policy and implement that throughout our global operations with our data management teams. And, and this was late 2014. So the GDPR was in the works. And I just got the sense that this whole arena of protecting data was going to become really, really big. And I found it super interesting. 
And I, I just kind of got it. It just kind of clicked with me and I decided to pursue it. And so I took a specialist uh, legal advisory position at the International Committee of the Red Cross, where I was then advising and training staff all over the world on, on how to protect the data of the people um, that the International Committee of the Red Cross is mandated to protect. And I think what's important to note is that working for the UN Commissioner for Refugees, High Commissioner for Refugees, and then the International Committee for the Red Cross, these are, these are international organisations that are mandated to protect people in situations of armed conflict and fleeing persecution. And yeah. so protecting those people's information, the data about those people that we had on our systems was really a matter of life and death for a lot of those people. Because if it got into the wrong hands, those people could potentially be facing further persecution. I then took on the role of heading up the global data privacy program at an American uh, engineering and technology company in the oil and gas industry. I was running their, their global data privacy program. And so a lot of that involved big cultural change management programs to try and convince many in the, in the company that protecting data was uh, necessary for their core business which is not easy to do in a non in unregulated industry and particularly in an industry where you know you're looking at manufacturing and, and engineering processes as their core business. Yeah. But I think I learned the hard way that approaches to data security and data privacy can be very very cultural. And there is, you know, mm. there is quite a I think a bit of a cultural divide across the Atlantic uh, in terms of considerations of privacy and security. So after that, uh, leading them through the coronavirus crisis, I then had a bit of a stretch position working for a company uh, designing and delivering organizational trainings to big, large corporates. And we were using, in particular, applied improvisation technique uh, to develop agile leaders and synergistic approaches to teamwork and futuristic thinking and enhanced communication and negotiation and creativity. And applied inf improvisation technique is a a fascinating organizational development tool that a lot of leading tech companies like Google and um, Visa and Amazon use um, as a way of building how their teams latch onto new ideas and work together mm. in very agile ways. And from there, I moved to consulting. Um, I'm now at Accenture in security consulting in Switzerland, where I focus on human factors in security, drawing all of my experience from training a lot of people in different contexts and understanding how the mind of a person who is intent on committing a criminal offense works as well. And then pulling these together to really understand how, how humans behave and, and how to change their behavior. Wow. Yanya, I mean, I did tell our guests that they were going to be in for a, a real treat today. That is extraordinary, I have to say. From that kind of farming background in Australia, and, and I have to share that I began my career in Australia um, oh, actually as a, as a gappy in Armadale, New South Wales. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the farm I grew up on was in Nimingal, yeah. which is just down the road from Armadale, just outside of the Moonee Ranges. <laughs> so there you go. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm extremely impressed because of two things. I think it's the, it's the range of work that is, that you've, you've done, but also it's, it feels like important work, right? So, you know, from, from the prosecution work to uh, the UN, to the Red Cross, 
to critical national infrastructure during a, a global pandemic to now really contemplating how bad actors are, are, are thinking as they are intent on committing crime. And, and not just bad actors, right, but also innocent actors and, and how we can help them. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and I just, I mean, we could go in so many uh, different directions and even this, these techniques that you described that leading tech organizations, for example, are using to, to get their organizations to innovate and think. We're going to have to have you back and just focus just on that because I think we could spend a lot of time dining on implied improvisation technique. Oh, with um, pleasure. I think, <laughs> I think is what you said. Um, but but let's, let's, let's move on because I know that there is a very specific reason why you, you, you agreed to join us on this episode today and indeed something that's close to your heart. So today we're going to spend much of our time discussing burnout culture, as I know it's an issue that's both close to your heart and very topical within the cybersecurity industry at the moment. What prompted your original interest in that specific area? A very short answer to your question. I had a severe burnout and uh, I was working in the industry and I eventually got treatment uh, for it. And that treatment involved a, uh, a two-month stint in a burnout uh, recovery program in a hospital. When I was in hospital, I was quite surprised to see the number of information security professionals that just kept coming through the door into the program. Mm. Now, this mm. was during the mm. pandemic. And of course, you know, there were a number of health professionals and allied health professionals in the program, but really the overwhelming majority of people coming in were information security professionals. And I just started to think, well, this is a bit of an odd pattern. I hadn't really been aware of the problem in the industry until it happened to me. But then when I was in hospital and I start seeing all of these people coming in who are in a very similar kind of profession to me, uh, I start to wonder if there is some uh, dots that are worth joining. And I then satisfied my curiosity and was researching about it. And, and from what I could tell at that time, there not a whole lot had been written about the impacts of burnout on the profession or on cyber risk generally, but there were a couple of things that I came across, including some research from Stanford University by uh, Professor Jeff Hancock, who had collaborated with a security company, Tessian, I believe, mm. and they'd put out a report and in that report, it was talking about the impacts of stress and overwhelm on behavior and how this is critical to understanding cybersecurity risk. And it really made sense to me because I had been thinking, well, you know, if the way in which stress and overwhelm and overstrain affects an individual is that we're not able to fully concentrate on the task in front of us and we're suffering from exhaustion and we're feeling ineffective surely this is going to play into the decisions that we make as a user ourselves. And indeed, as the more I researched, the more, I, the more these links became obvious. And I decided in the end that this was a really important topic that needed to have some more light shed on it. And so I decided to speak about it. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, thank you for your work, actually, because I, I have and continue to learn more. I had limited understanding, but because of your work, um, I've educated myself and, and, and now come to a much better appreciation for just the, you know, the depth and the size and speed of this challenge um, within the industry. And I think it's critical that we, we continue to have this conversation mm. and, and to talk about it. But did you find it hard to kind of speak publicly about, about, about your experience? Yes and no. So I decided that this was something that we really needed to look into further and we needed to raise awareness about. 
because I saw that uh, it was a really pressing problem that was probably going to be impacted by the the skills shortage we have in cybersecurity. And I saw it as a bit of a, a brewing storm. I still do in the sense that the numbers we're seeing in terms of cybersecurity professionals burning out are really, really significant. There mm. was some research that was conducted um, actually by an Australian researcher um, at the University of Adelaide in conjunction with a not-for-profit that looks at mental health uh, in the cyber industry called CyberMinds. And their research showed that the burnout rates of those in cybersecurity professions were even outnumbering frontline healthcare worker rates of burnout. Wow. Which is huge. Yes, it was difficult to speak publicly about my experience, but because I hadn't really come across too much, I, hadn't, I wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount in the media. I think that's changed now. I think since the pandemic, I think we've seen a lot more attention on this issue, which is great. But at the time, I wasn't really seeing a whole lot of attention on it. And, and I just thought that the numbers that I was seeing, you know, anywhere between 60 to 85% of cybersecurity professionals uh, are burning out. You know, when Gartner, for instance, has predicted that by 2025, um, a quarter of all cybersecurity leaders will change their roles entirely because of workplace stress and burnout. Wow. I see this as being a really big issue that uh, is going to impact cyber resilience, organizational cyber resilience. And so it kind of was a bit serendipitous really because I didn't set out to make a TED talk, but I decided that one day I would speak about this publicly somehow. You know, it had changed me a lot as an individual. It was an a huge uh, event to go through. And I kind of felt on one way and one hand that I couldn't really continue going through life without talking about it because it was something that had just become such a huge part of what I had gone through. And mm. not to say that it was then, you know, it's not like it's part of my identity, but of course it has shaped me. And so I wanted to shed light on this important issue and then quite serendipitously someone who, who volunteers with the TED uh, organisation approached me and said, look, we've had someone drop out of the program, would you consider speaking? And so the universe kind of gets conspired and I was like, okay, well, I've got my, my topic already. It was just my way of making lemonade out of the lemons that life had thrown me. So bringing these two very topical issues together at the time, for me, it felt like it was the right time to talk about it and, and that an audience would be relatively receptive to it and that it wouldn't be uh, such a terrifying career limiting move that I feared at times it might be. Again, I'm so I'm almost emotional and overwhelmed by just hearing um, mm -hmm. some of these some of these some of these statistics and data. Uh, in particular, your example about the fact that the industry was seeing a higher prevalence of this issue than even frontline yeah. health workers. It's crazy. I think to me that is that is scary, right? <laughs> that yeah, is it is. And it begs a question which which you know um you know I wonder um what your thoughts are on this. Was a part of the challenge uh, that drove this um, this intensity the fact that, in essence, security professionals were at war, but the war had never really been officially declared in the same way that, um, you know, as a soldier, you're going into this epic battle and you've got the right training, the right support structures. And, and yet, you know, we found ourselves in the middle of, of a war, essentially, and we hadn't completely appreciated 
the the threat and its sophistication, and we were under-resourced and already doing what many would describe in the industry as a thankless job, uh, mm. that the combination of all of those things, and indeed fear for your lives from the threat of the pandemic itself, mm-hmm. just meant that there was so much pressure on individuals in these teams that uh, this this almost became inevitable. Yes, I, I agree with, with much of what you've said, although I the point of departure is that I don't think it's inevitable. And I say that because I think there's a lot that organisations and individuals can do, um, leaders in particular, in how they create their teams, in how we resource teams, particularly security operating um, centres, things that we can do to actually reduce this risk. But I, I, I completely agree with you that um, there is a constant threat and it's quite intangible. And if you consider the way in which the the brain works, our amygdala is firing, right? Our amygdala is driving us to make decisions on the basis of, you know, can we trust something or are we afraid of something? And so in the context of cybersecurity threats, when you have this ever-present threat that you know is there but you can't see it and you rarely discover it or detect it, but you're constantly fighting it, I think there's a lot of fertile ground there for further research on on what this mm. is actually doing to the brain. And there's a there, there are there are organizations that that are looking at this um, and how and how the brain works and then and how decision making is then impacted. But I do think that, you know, in 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 cybersecurity, so much of our language in cyber is militarized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about firewalls, we talk about defenses. And a, and a lot of this has come from medieval uh, constructions of defence tactics, war tactics. One of my colleagues who I was discussing this with, uh, John Scott, you know, he was saying, well, I, I think that this militarised language sort of drives the attitude that if you're not burning out, you're not working hard enough. Interesting. And what I will say, though, is we, if we take, for example, like Maslach, Christina Maslach, who's one of the world's foremost researchers on burnout, and she's developed the, the Maslach burnout inventory, which is a, a method of, of, of determining whether someone is at risk of or experiencing burnout, one of the key indicators is whether that person is feeling that they have any efficacy in their role. And I think one of the challenges in cybersecurity, and particularly if we use the, the jobs resources demands model to, to, as a mm-hmm. framework for assessing it, we can see that the demands are outweighing significantly the resources and this is this is for a number of reasons but I think the more strain we put on security teams the more emphasis we put on technology for solving our problems as opposed to also understanding that technology doesn't exist in a vacuum it's situated within an environment that is shaped by the processes and the people that are interacting with it I think we do ourselves a big disservice we set ourselves up in a way that organisations are perhaps not doing as much as they could to mitigate this problem. I mean, you bring up a really, really powerful point right there, which is this idea that because the militarization of the language and then the limited resources, etc., if you're not burning out, are you actually working hard enough? Or do we have a culture problem in organizations? And are there certain aspects of an organization's makeup that facilitates professional burnout, do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. So yes, I think at the root of this, there is an organizational culture issue. The research also suggests that, yes, this is also about individuals. So perfectionists are at increased risk of burning out, I've since learned. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely there are certain aspects of an organization's makeup 
that can contribute to a burnout culture. So one of those is, as I mentioned, um, looking at how much effort. So if you have excessive job demands and then you have resources that are lacking, if you have an asymmetry between those two things, if the excessive job demands lead to exhaustion and the lack of resources leads to disengagement, then you have a two underlying psychological processes that have a significant role in burnout. One of the things that's really important is um, reciprocity at both the interpersonal level and also the organisational level. So this plays a crucial role in, in burnout. So to phrase it more simply, the problem of burnout in an organisation is where employees have invested too long and too much in their relationships with others and in their work without receiving enough back in return from them. And so this, is, this creates a, a so-called negative social exchange relationship. And mm-hmm. it's what makes helper jobs so stressful. But we also see it in the cyber context because whilst organisations are making, you know, I think there, there is movement, there is a lot of positive development, we still do tend to see that there is a, so much emphasis placed on the individual to solve all of the organisational problems and yet too little, uh, it's a very thankless profession. You know, no one ever thanks you for... Uh, preventing the data breach that didn't happen. Correct. <laughs> and at the same time, we we don't end up, or rather we could invest more in making sure that our teams are well-resourced, in making sure that our organisational systems and processes are, are as frictionless as possible, in making sure that our teams feel supported. The social exchange relationship between the employee and the organisation uh, is super important. And so... Yeah. If someone feels that they're, if something goes wrong, their organization doesn't have their back or their team doesn't have their back, then this tends to result in a, in a, in a, in a situation where there's that lack of reciprocity. And it's very draining, right? So I think the other thing, if we look at this through the lens of organizational culture, one of the researchers that I found very compelling is Daniel Coyle. He spent uh, a number of years studying the world's um, most successful group cultures and he analysed their ingredients and he found that the most successful group cultures are ones that have psychological safety. So they're cultures Mm. in which people feel like they belong and they're safe and where risk is mutually shared. It's not just the, the prerogative or the responsibility of one person or one team. And they're cultures in which people feel like they're safe enough to be able to put up their hand and, and admit to mistakes and failure. This, I think, highlights the importance of a just culture and how many organisations still could do a lot of work to create a just culture. And a mm, just culture, mm. as we've seen in the aviation industry, for example, is one where we focus on understanding the root um, cause of a problem and analysing the ingredients that, that led to the baking of that cake as opposed to finding out, well, who baked the cake and now let's, yep. let's prosecute them. Psychological safety is a byproduct of a just culture. What's interesting, I think, about looking at human factors in cyber is that from what I can tell, the very ingredients that we talk about, and I know CyberSafe talks about a lot, about you know, making people feel safe enough to admit when they've made an innocent mistake I believe is also the root cause of a lot of the organizational cultural issues that are creating 
uh, burnout cultures. Yanya, again, um, we could go seven ways from here. You know, I've got questions at the top of my mind. Let me let me let me ask a couple straight off the bat. Sure. It's clear that this is making our cyber security programs less effective or less efficacious, as you said earlier, if we're operating within this context. So if you've got people that are, you know, stressed and burning out, but are also responsible for defending the organization, I imagine that even if they're trying their best, they're not doing the best work. And almost now what we have is a compounding problem, which is the work is harder, <laughs> you know, the threat is, is, is more sophisticated, and yet the need in the organization is also vastly increased. It's, it's, it feels like a cash 22 of sorts. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely it is. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the ability to do our best work happens when usually when we're in a state of flow, and that is not something that tends to happen very often when we're extremely exhausted and when we feel this lack of uh, sense of efficacy at work. Most organizations are still seeing security as something that people need to do in addition to their, their full-time jobs. The reality is that it's secondary to production. Unless your job is actually security for an organization that provides security for another organization, <laughs> your core production is likely not going to be security. What's interesting is that there are some researchers who've talked about using a safety approach for security. And I think it, it actually holds a lot of the answers for us. In the mid-80s, pilots and operators were often blamed for accidents whenever they took a wrong action when dealing with a critical incident. Mm -hmm. But today, we've seen that the, the safety critical approach in the aviation industry, for instance, has taken a different turn. And now we have just cultures right? We have a just yeah. culture in the aviation industry. So for example, if you take that pilot who crash landed on the Hudson River, mm -hmm. he was able to make a call to the air control tower and ask for the river to be cleared so that he could land the plane as safely as possible. Now he was not blamed for the actions that he took. On the contrary, he's been lauded for his, That's right. for his bravery and his courage in, in, in a situation of crisis. I think that we need to get to a stage, and I'm sure we will, it's probably just a, a matter of evolution, where security will take the same approach, where instead of blaming people for making innocent mistakes, we will seek to understand the root causes, why it's happening. Okay, maybe we, we put too much emphasis on the user and we, we made their cognitive demands unattainable. When we get to that stage, I think that the pressures on security professionals are going to be, they'll certainly be different and they'll certainly be there, but I think this approach to security that we currently have ends up increasing the stress on security professionals. Yeah, yeah. When, when, I, when, I, when I hear you and talk about this idea of a just culture, it does, it does genuinely excite me. And I, and I wonder, just looking at, at, at the CISOs that I know, for example, and, and leaders of security organizations, there is a striking correlation between a military background <laughs> and ending up in security leadership. Do you imagine that because most security leaders, at least the ones that I encounter, have that kind of background, they have a very different kind of culture to what you might see in aviation, as you're saying, and that has been transferred into the organization without the requisite support infrastructure around the actual 
members of the team? Or do you, do you not think that's the case? That's a really interesting question. I've met a lot of CISOs and cybersecurity leaders who have not come from a military background. I think that they face the same problems actually in their organizations. So what we see is that the way in which our organizations are set up and structured and run, I think does add a lot to the issue. But it's also the way in which we conceive of security. And as I mentioned, without putting it in in a safety critical approach and actually Having worked with law enforcement, I would imagine that they tend to, I mean, they, they do tend to want to get to the root cause of things, right? They do want to understand what's causing something and then address that, that issue. So I'm not so sure that there would necessarily be this link between their background and the issues we're seeing now. What I'm seeing now is that we have workloads that are unmitigated. Leaders, cybersecurity leaders are being thrust into the spotlight as cybersecurity becomes a strategic risk for companies, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily given the tools and the resources to be able to influence the board or the C-suite or the CFO who holds the purse strings and then is in 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 a position to be able to take business decisions that are in line with their appetite for risk, considering the risk that the cyber threat poses. And I also see a lot of organizational cultures where cyber psychological safety is not prioritized. Mm. And it's much easier to have a situation, have a culture where we just look for someone to blame and, and scapegoat. Yep. And if you look at the, I mean, the numbers, I, the numbers of, of CISOs who take their company through, you know, navigate their company through a, a massive attack or data breach and then are let go at the end of it, I think is a, yep. sends a really damaging message. One of the things that Daniel Coyle found in his research is that the world's most successful group cultures have a number of things in common. And one of those things is that they profusely thank each other. And we talk about cybersecurity being a very thankless profession, and it is. Mm-hmm. And I think this also has to change. I completely agree with you. And, and I can definitely see this tension that you're describing between this was not always an, you know, a strategic risk. And, mm-hmm. and some of the organizational changes you've described are moving it into that space, you know, the attention of the CFO and indeed just culture transformation. So, so outside of what the organization needs to do, what advice do you have for individuals who may feel they're approaching burnout or perhaps are even experiencing it? Well, I would say first things first, go and speak to your, to your doctor. I'm not a medical professional and And I do think it's important that we look out for our colleagues, but I also think it's important that we don't try to usurp the role of a medical professional. And so maybe we can encourage our colleagues or our friends that we see struggling. We can, we can encourage them to go and speak to their doctor. Having gone through this myself, I would say, don't delay, speak to your doctor as soon as possible. Burnout is defined by the World Health Organization as an occupational phenomenon but of course it has very real and significant effects on the individual at a physical and emotional level. And it tends to have the effect of creeping up on us in a way that we don't realize that we're already burnt out. You know, it does manifest in people in different ways, but for me, I mean, I just definitely felt uh, exhausted, chronically exhausted, and definitely those, those feelings of a lack of efficacy. And I also felt that my personal productivity um, was not as perhaps high as maybe it mm. had been or, or felt like it usually was. 
Yeah, Yanya, I think you've just described what a number of colleagues and peers in the industry may indeed be feeling. So mm. I would take that advice immediately. I can't stress enough how important this conversation has been. And indeed, I'm not allowed to have favorites in terms of guests, but I genuinely do feel that this, if we address this, you know, I think we can solve a lot of other stuff. Finally, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience as we close? I was just going to say, Munya, and it can sound very overwhelming. And perhaps if there are leaders um, listening who are thinking, okay, well, this sounds like a really complex problem and how on earth am I going to solve this within my own organization? I would say start small and then scale. So I think it really starts with leaders acknowledging their fallibility, willing to admit that they're not perfect and they do make mistakes. And that then creates space and encourages other people in their team to do the same. And I think, you know, if, you, if you're a leader of a team or you, you manage a team, if there's any bullying or harassment going on that you're aware of that you haven't fully dealt with and managed properly, I'd say start there because that yeah. has a huge effect and impact on the health of an organizational culture. And I would say also look at the workloads of your team members and see, can they be optimized at all? Can they be reduced? Increase job control of people in your team. I would also look at the various processes that are in place in your organization. Can they be reduced? First of all, do we need all these processes? Are there duplicative processes? Because that just adds stress to someone's workload. And ask, you know, are there any ways that we can reduce the friction around these processes? I personally think that organizational resilience is dependent upon individual resilience. Yes. And the yoga mat has a purpose, but <laughs> it isn't making your organization, organization resilient. And this problem we have of burnout in cybersecurity is massive. You know, we talked a yes. little bit about the, the figures, but also when you consider that organizations are spending twice as much on the cost of burnout as they are on cybersecurity is crazy. I mean, $322 billion annually globally is spent on dealing with burnout, whether it's as a result of turnover, attrition, sick leave, and so forth. And so the human element in cyber touches us all. And I'm convinced yeah. that by prioritizing the people part of people, yes. process, and technology, instead of focusing all of our attention on technology, that we might also be able to address not just user behavior and, and help people become better able to, to support people in their cyber safe practices. But I think we're also going to go a long way in addressing the mental health crisis that's affecting our, our profession. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> My guest today has been Jana Viskovic, Senior Manager Security Consulting at Accenture, but much, much more, as you've heard. Jana, thank you so much for that input, that wisdom, and the genuine sense of determination and mission that I heard personally uh, throughout this conversation about the fact that not only is this something that we could solve, this is something that we might solve. I think this is something we have to solve mm. um, because what's at stake is far too critical uh, for us to kind of continue as we are. And I do hope to the leaders that are listening, uh, to the colleagues that are listening that may be facing these challenges, you know, help is on the way. This research is happening. Uh, but more importantly, that brave first step of, you know, figuring it out, realizing, seeing a health professional. I can't emphasize and underline enough the importance of that kind of advice. Yanya, thank you so much. And I hope to have you back on the show very soon. Thank you so much, Munya. It would be my pleasure.